I really enjoyed my interview today with Julie Sassi, who is the director, curator for the Tucson Museum of Arts, Modern, Contemporary, and Latin American Departments. Julie, I've known for a long time, but there was a lot of things I learned about her I had no idea. She has a very interesting history that starts in the early 60s and goes right up to today. And we went longer than we should have, but you're going to love it. We talk about T.C. Cannon, Fritz Scholder, Larry Rivers, David Hockney. These are all people that she's either done shows with or knew. And, of course, the uh, most interesting person of Elaine Horowitz, who was the leader and shaker of the Native American Western Southwestern art world back in the 70s and 80s and even to, to she's still important today so enjoy this ride with Julie Saucy. well guess who I'm with Julie Saucy. gosh I've known you for a long time Julie I think you have you know and it's funny we've gone to trips together for looking at art we've been at different exhibits you know that you've uh, curated We've never sat down and talked, and this is why I want to do this show: is to talk to people like you, because you're very interesting in a lot of a lot of ways. That um, you might be one of the more interesting guests I'll have, because you've done things that no other guest that I've had so far has done. Which you have been in the retail business, like what I do, Mm -hmm. selling art and selling Native American art as well. But now you're a curator. You're the curator at Tucson Museum of Art for modern, contemporary, and Latin American art, right? That's right. You've done, what, 90 exhibits, I think, so, I think or at creeping, least? Creeping up to 100 now, wow, I hate wow. to say. <laughs> Including on really important artists like AYY and uh, Andy Warhol, Matisse, Deborah mm-hmm. Butterfield. Um, so tell me, Absolutely. how did you end up? sitting here with me. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm a cat with nine lives. (laughs) Yeah, Um, right. You are in a way. What I love is the idea when they say when a door shuts, a new one opens. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, probably um, the key to that interesting background is the idea of knowing when it's time to move on and to find that new adventure. So um, when I think about it, I started out in high school dreaming of living on a sheep farm <laughs> and sheep farm, never huh? got there. Why but, sheep? Uh, <laughs> I got to know this. Why sheep I versus cattle versus I anything just, else? I love the image. I love the idea of the, the associations with pastoralness. And I just started reading all these animal husbandry books. And, of course, <laughs> I was a young hippie, and I thought, I'll live right. on a commune and raise sheep and uh-huh. be a weaver. I never got that far. My mother was smart, and she had come from, you know, good farm stock in uh-huh. Wisconsin, and said, "Finish college, you can do whatever you want to do." Right. So she she was smart enough. By then, I got into something different. But, so you uh, were creative at that time, then, because you're, you're, yeah. you're thinking about going and donating your life to weaving whatever textiles. Right. Well, think about it. It was the early late '60s. And then into the early 70s when right. craft was becoming a very important and very respected field. Right. And I was very interested in sewing, uh, weaving, spinning, things like that. So um, even in high school, I was making my own line of clothing. I was making my own earrings out of, for lack of other materials, I was making earrings out of uh, fishing lure materials. Oh, wow. Because my father was a, a tire of uh, fishing flies and he made his uh-huh. own Um, bow and arrows so uh, he was very craft oriented as was my grandmother so I was very interested in in and this was Wisconsin this was Illinois Illinois my family is from Wisconsin but um, and my grandmother would card wool to make batting for for quilts Uh so there was this background and rag rugs those sort of things so I was very interested in transforming those kinds of techniques into um, contemporary weaving uh, but it took a while, you know. I mm-hmm. at first was thinking only about living on a commune, but never happened. <laughs> and, and now, so when you, you know, that was the time of the Native American movement too. For uh, at least in my our field, you mm-hmm. know, for Native American stuff. And were you aware of that whole, you know, the squash blossom and the mm-hmm. Indian movement and Indian yeah. jewelry and all that? Not so much the Southwest until I came west. Uh-huh. But I did read copious. I was a library freak. Even mm-hmm. in high school, I was always at the library. If I wasn't reading something about strange physical abnormalities, I was reading animal husbandry, Uh but Native American uh, history. Um, So it was mostly the Native Americans from Illinois and Wisconsin, Mm. where I was from, that I was fascinated with. And I have to say, I was probably one of the first 
young women to pierce my ears all the way up because I saw that <laughs> in a book about Native Americans. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Much see to that my, right now. No, I got rid of it. <laughs> but my mother was appalled. Um, but um, I'm sure. <laughs> and, and our family, bleeding heart liberals. Um, <laughs> We were proud to say that actually one of our relatives or our ancestors was scalped by Red Hawk. Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> or yeah. Blackhawk, Black I mean. Hawk, yeah. yeah. He had red hair, and they, you know, that's our badge of pride, actually, yeah. that we were the victims. <laughs> you were early, very yeah, early. Absolutely. So, how did you end up in the Southwest from Illinois? Did well, it's, you go to school? it's a circuitous. I actually went to school in Mexico through a friend wow. who had just visited there in uh, San Miguel de Allende as a mm -hmm. tourist. She came back with a brochure, and I was a very um, sort of recalcitrant teenager, probably getting into bad business, uh, <laughs> living at home, but um, actually started uh, college at 16. Mm. Um, I hated high school, um, mm -hmm. so I said I want to graduate early. That's when I was hoping to go to a commune. Right. And um, <laughs> so I thought, well, race through high school right. so you can get, race through college so you can go do this sheep right. thing. So this friend brought back this brochure and so they packed me off at, and I wanted to go to Mexico for a semester. This and is like Mexico City? This was San Miguel de Allende, oh, San which Miguel. was, you know, it's a, an American yeah, no, <laughs> outpost. Yeah. but it, Beautiful there. And I had no idea because I'd never been to the Southwest except for maybe driving through in the 50s on mm -hmm. our way to Disneyland, the classic uh, family trip. Right. So um, when I went there, suddenly the whole colonial history, uh, the idea of uh, the dusty streets, the, the charm, right. it just, uh, just floored me. I think I went there in 1972. And so it yeah. was quite magical. Yeah. And I learned to weave and to spin. Oh, wow. And uh, that's when I got the I had already been a, a seamstress and that kind of thing, uh, seamstress for the band. All yeah. the rock bands would come through, and my father was absolutely incensed. That come, come through in <laughs> to my house in for measurements in, in Illinois. Illinois. Yes, yeah. yes. So I'd already had a background and an interest in textiles mm -hmm. or, or fashion or sewing, but when I got there, that's when I learned to spin and to weave. Oh. And uh, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. So I was there only three months, but I wanted when I came back, I wanted to find a place in the U.S. Mm -hmm. that made me feel like Mexico. Oh. How that felt right, to me. Right. And of course, I knew nothing. We didn't have the internet back then. So right. how did we know anything but hearsay or right. some strange magazines? You know. Um, so a friend, um, actually, was a teacher. Uh, who was teaching weaving at Southern Illinois University, mm -hmm. where I got my undergraduate degree, had spent some time in Arizona, and she came back saying how great the weaving program was. Mm. And knowing that I was looking for something in the Southwest, she said, you should go to ASU. Mm. Well, I packed up my whole life and drove out without even looking at the school. Back then, we didn't do the right. college road trips. Now, you, like had had, you were just finishing your BFA? My, yes, yeah. Okay. So I, I, and I was weaving by then and spinning. Um, so I came out to go to ASU, and instead of finding this, you know, Adobe Right, you're charm, thinking Mexico. I'm thinking Mexico. <laughs> it was modernist Phoenix and Tempe, yeah, yeah. and I was absolutely appalled. Yeah. I could not believe what I had come to. And I called my mom and said, this isn't what I expected. And right. she basically, again, nudged me to keep moving and said, right. you'll have to come home and share a room with your sister if right. you come back. Right. Why don't you stick it out for a semester and you can transfer credits somewhere right. else? Right. So <laughs> I gave it a shot. And it's interesting. I have books from the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, all about Arizona history, and I got to meet Maria Martinez. Oh, you did? And, I and did you meet her in Arizona? I met her in Arizona. Yeah. She was at the Heard Museum. Uh, I have an autograph book. Oh, nice. And I started to fall in love with Arizona and the history of the place. Right. And I just, I, when I came out, I actually had in my head, which I find laughable now, in my mind, I thought, I will go up to the Navajo Reservation, learn how to weave from the Navajo, right. and then come back to school and translate that into my own contemporary designs. I had no concept of appropriation mm. or cultural decency. Right. And to me, I, although when you think about the Taos and the Santa Fe colony artists, they all thought it was totally no problem right. to take those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. So um, it 
it was one of my first fellow students uh, at ASU who was mm-hmm. Navajo who set me straight and he said you don't do that oh really we will was, not that, was that was that person a weaver or his family a his weaver? family was family weavers uh-huh. and he basically said how wrong that was Interesting. and, and this what, was like in 72 this was 72 no by then I w- it was 1974 I came to ASU yeah so you've been you're working right along on your uh, your my master's degree. Yes, on my master's degree. Yeah. And um, to make matters even more complicated, uh-huh. I worked for a company. I had a, a very bad boy boyfriend back then, and he worked for a company. He was a jeweler and a blacksmith. Mm. And um, he worked for a company that made, quote, Indian jewelry. Yeah. I had no idea that what we were doing was, um, you know, fraud. Ripping them off. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. It didn't occur to me. You know, I just thought, that well, was, we're that we're was trained. very common, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, in that time frame, because the mm-hmm. Indian movement was so strong, and I've heard this story over and over again that mm-hmm. in the late '60s, early '70s, you, you know, you had different communes like in Taos and different places, even your boyfriend, that were yeah. making so-called Indian jewelry, right, which looked right. like it because it was all the rage and they couldn't get sure. enough. So, My, how did that? What did you do? Well, what, did, when did you, you know, figure that out? That well, that was. Wrong. First of all, I, the, what I remember distinctly is just being appalled at seeing huge piles of bear paws, you know, hacked oh, yeah. off bear paws oh, yeah. to get the claws. Uh, I, and then, of course, I, <clears throat> I noticed that there were no Native Americans there. Mm. And we were repairing Charles Lolama jewelry and mm-hmm. then doing um, a cheaper ripoff of Lolama. Mm. So I at least got to know Lolama's work because I had never heard of him before. Right. He, he was totally unknown to me. Right. So think about it. It was 1974, and Lolama had been around since the 50s, right. if not even earlier. But uh, by then, he was a big deal. He was really big. Yeah. And yeah. So the biggest, probably. Here I am repairing his work, uh-huh. uh, you know, doing my best. But my specialty was called Sun Faces. And I just cranked them out all day long. Uh-huh. And um, spiny oyster right. shells with uh, the, right. that black and white pattern. Right. It always felt kind of icky to me. Right. But I kept doing it because it was a job. Right. And um, so as soon as I got out of well, I actually, he got let go. And I knew I had to leave that day well, because right. I was going to be... You know, persona non grata. <laughs> so uh, I left before the end of '76. Uh, yeah. Um, but it always stuck with me, and that's why years later, and we'll go back to the how I got into the gallery work. Right. But years later, when I went back for a master's degree in art history, mm. I picked um, the topic of Native American authenticity and mm. the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. It was for me a chance to sort of. Fix thing, redeem yeah. myself, yeah. yes, so that I could confess to what I had done and to try to make things better by uh, kind of addressing that scholarship. And what did you find in that? What what, what was your research? I mean, what did you determine? From uh, that that well, was in the seventy sixes. What the, 70, the when you did this other the secondary master? No, that I didn't do till the eighties. Uh, till the eighties, much much later. Um, and what I, the reason why I, I picked that topic is mm. because I had been working for Lane Horwich Galleries. At that point. At that point, yes. I started there. <clears throat> at first, I taught weaving and metalsmithing for mm. a couple of years in uh, Arizona mm-hmm. at ASU mm-hmm. and then at Eastern Washington University. Mm-hmm. So you left and went up there and came back? After graduation from my MFA. Yeah. And then I came back. Yeah. And when I came back, I couldn't get a teaching job anymore. All those jobs had been filled by my past students uh, or... Yeah. You know, the, right. But you wanted to come back to but Arizona. I, I needed to come back. Yeah, so okay. I came back, and um, when I found myself without a job, I started to work in a commercial gallery. I mean, I was, I say, this close to working as a directory assistant operator. Mm. Were you number please? That was the old wow. days. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting on a table. Here I am. A, I had been the head of two departments at this university, mm-hmm. and I had this MFA and had a very pretty... Uh, I'd say not distinguished, but I was in a good track as an artist myself. And suddenly I'm trying to get a job at the phone company. (laughs) I couldn't even get a job in a frame shop because I had no framing skills. And the nurse who was giving Mm. me a physical before I started the job was checking me for like, um, you know, 
attic tracks right. on your arms right. and everything. And I thought, What's, what am I doing here? <laughs> and she looked at my background. She had this chart. And she said, right. oh, honey, what are you doing here? And I started to cry. Uh -huh. And I said, I can't do this. And she said, good, find another job. Yeah. You <laughs> I didn't never, you, never did it. You didn't have to call your mom and ask and say, <laughs> exactly. did, did you call your mom when you? Oh, that one I yeah. got. By then, I sort of had the mom in you, my head. Yeah, I bet. Oh, that's but so uh, funny. I'll never forget that. So I've had these things where I almost lived on a commune. I almost right. worked for the phone company. But I stopped myself and so, thought keep at so it. So when you did that, so mm -hmm. you said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. How did you go from there to getting the job at Elaine Horowitz, who was the premier mm -hmm. gallery gallerist sure. at that time in mm -hmm. Phoenix and Well, I Palm tried to get, I tried to get a job Bay with and, Michael Collier Frame Shop. Oh, and that's funny. He said, you've got no background. I can't use you, but I can tell you right now there's a couple of galleries in town that I work with, and uh -huh. I know Suzanne Brown Gallery is right. looking for um, an employee, right? And um, she had just changed her name from Art Wagon to Suzanne Brown Gallery. So I and why did she do that? Do you know when did she do that? No, why? Did why she, did she do yeah. that? I mean, I, it was I, a good good short call on her. I part, think she but. wanted to. She had been in business with Elaine Horwich in the six since nineteen sixty four. They started uh -huh. working out of the back of their station wagons. Mm. And they were selling like Tupperware model. They were selling prints and low-end art and graphics right. um, uh, to young families that were mm -hmm. just looking to have some decoration. Mm -hmm. So they would teach them about art, and then they would sell at the end of their, mm -hmm. their talk. Um, so I think that when Elaine Horwich broke off on her own in 73, I think Suzanne always felt like she needed to uh, kind of create her own persona and um, make her mark with her mm -hmm. name on it and take the art wagon out of it. And was that art wagon both Horowitz's and? Yes, they, they went together. into business, I think it was like 19, well, they were in business with this station wagon business mm -hmm. uh, in 64, but by 68, they got their own space. So they had a number of years, uh, five good years or more before Elaine cut off on her own and uh, created the Elaine Horowitz galleries. Right. And she moved over to Marshall Way in downtown Scottsdale, which was, not the art area. She created that as an art. And that area. was her first gallery. Her own gallery with her name yeah. on it. That was an art wagon. Because so, she ends up in Santa Fe and Palm yes, Springs. Yes, and too. she ended up. Um, she moved to uh, added another gallery in Santa Fe in 1976. Mm. So think about it. That's when I graduated. So we're right. kind of having these. You're following a parallel path. A little bit that we're both fascinated with the Southwest. Right. Of course, I came from a very modest uh, academic family. She came from a wealthy family in Chicago. Right. But I understood what her fascination was with the Southwest. Yeah. I understood uh, her interest in galleries. I had never had any contact with art galleries before. You know, as a student, yeah. I was a little bit intimidated to go. I came from a small town. Mm. But when I uh, had put in a couple of years with Suzanne Brown, I heard that she was looking for a director, Elaine mm. Horwich. So I was encouraged to go apply. And so I, you worked for Brown. I worked for Brown so, for two or three years. And that's the job you got instead of AT&T. You went to yes, and worked. Yes, And that, at that time, it was called Suzanne Brown Gallery. It just had become yes. Suzanne Brown. And was so, Ed Mel showing at that point? Ed yet? Mel showed later, but it was Orlin Joe when he was a young, when oh, he was wow. in his 20s. Yeah, so really he was early. just starting yeah. out. Joe Baker was yeah. there. Um, and so I got to, and Rudy Fernandez was mm. there. So she was showing... Uh, if you Hispanic artists, if you want to call Rudy a Hispanic right. or Latino right. or Chicano, I think at the time was yeah. more of the term right. that would have been used. Joe Baker, of course, a Delaware, uh, Orlin Joe, uh, I believe Navajo. Yeah, uh, Navajo Ute. Ute, mm -hmm, yeah. Both. Um, so I started to learn about, so I knew about the jewelry background, mm -hmm. lesser names, but certainly Loloma. Suddenly, we're showing R.C. Gorman, mm. Charles Lolama, mm -hmm. Orlin Joe. At Suzanne Brown's. At, at Suzanne was, I didn't Brown's. Know that. Yeah. So, all of these people. And so, so I got to know doing, them well. Yeah, she was doing jewelry in the whole Native American. She wasn't doing the jewelry. She did show Lolama. Yeah. But other than that, it was uh, uh, pretty much the uh, sculpture and, um, and paintings because Joe Baker was a painter. Yeah. And how did it feel going from academia, right? Mm hmm to retail did you feel like it was a sellout or did your colleagues go oh not, not at all to oh, me i used the same sometimes people yeah, do feel they that. do and i did later i i did change my mind but it was all exciting to me mm. i was around a different group of people mm. they you know there was a lot of glamour um bruce babbitt came in all the time mm -hmm. irma bombeck came mm. in uh so i got kind of 
caught up in the social end of things. You know, mm-hmm. I was just the shop girl, but right. I got to be around important people. Right. And, uh, you know, the social column writer came in all the time, and they, right. the openings were exciting to me. Um, so Both uh, at Suzanne's and Elaine's. And, oh, Elaine's exponentially higher. But, yeah. yeah, so I got interested in that. But, you know, then I got to know R.C. Gorman and his how important he was mm-hmm. and Lola and you know, the, Lola Mo tried to get me to ride in his Rolls Royce with right. him, and uh, <laughs> you know, I was you know twenty four years old. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so did you take the ride? I did not take the ride. <laughs> I knew better, but uh, but he tried. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very exciting time. A yeah. Very exciting time. So um, basically, I got wrapped up in it. But I used to me, I used the same techniques uh, that I used in teaching, which mm. is. Uh, for sales. It, for sales. Treat yeah. everybody like it's a critique where you want to encourage the artist. Mm. Look for the good. Uh, discuss technique. And that's mm-hmm. where I, I could bring something special to the table is mm-hmm. that I knew more about art history because I had been researching it on my own and I was mm-hmm. truly interested in art right. of the Southwest. But I could also talk about how an artist made their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could um, bring out what was best in it instead of um, critiquing it in a negative way. So I had right. plenty to talk about. Yeah, it was more educational yeah. than sales. Right. How you and use the it, truth be told, both way. Suzanne and Elaine, the way they sold stuff was very simply, you should have one. I have three. I yeah. mean, that was kind of how she always <laughs> sold. I couldn't do that, so I had to right. use my own uh, talents. So to, why so. did you move from uh, Suzanne Brown mm-hmm. to Horowitz? What happened there? I think I always had a quest to be better or to have a new adventure. Right. But I also was in the in the very early stages of a divorce. Mm. And I knew that I needed more money and mm. I needed uh, a bigger project. Right. So uh, I left because I was going from just a, a gallery assistant to mm. director. And I wanted to... Scottsdale. Well, Scottsdale, Rose. I wanted both. Right. But uh, she said, well, we'll try you out in both Scottsdale and here C. and Santa, Santa Fe. Fe. She had yeah. both by I this point. I wanted to be there. The only time I'd ever been to Santa Fe was uh, on my way out west. Mm. Um, my boyfriend at the time uh, had gone to school at Turley Forge, the blacksmithing school in mm. Santa Fe, and he wanted me to see Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And back then in the early 70s, it was dirt roads and right. you know wonderful little you know uh, funky cafes yeah, to get Road pozole. Would have been just barely uh, yes. paved, but exactly. Point. And yeah. and he was <laughs> at Turley Forge, and he lived on Canyon Road mm-hmm. in a little mud hut mm-hmm. uh, back before it was really developed. Right. So I got to see it in that kind of Context. pristine charm that mm-hmm. everybody was so intrigued like with. Like in Mexico. It yeah. was basically, Absolutely. you probably felt that. And I went, oh my God, what was I thinking? That's where I meant to go, but right. I didn't know any right. better. In fact, Tucson was more like Mexico. Oh yeah, and, still is in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. But by then it was too late, and I had, you know, was on the fast track to get through school. But anyway, so I uh, started by working in Scottsdale as right. the director, and um, what year was this? This was uh, 1980. Okay. Uh, so she's really rolling by this time in the yeah, Native she's American. A big, she's the big deal. Yeah. And so it was a, a shocking for me and you know exciting that I was her the next head. director. Yeah, you're yeah, the person. Absolutely. And uh, I would go over in the summers and work from right after the Chicago Art Fair mm-hmm. um, and then uh, work in Santa Fe through uh, till September. So mm. I got out of the heat of the summer of... Right. Uh, of Scottsdale, and then come back, and so I had the best of both worlds. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. And how long did you work with Elaine Horowitz Gallery? I I worked till from nineteen fall of nineteen eighty until um, the spring of nineteen ninety five. So f- I stayed years after she died. And so. Name some of the artists that you must have worked with mm-hmm. and, and got to know well, at that I time. counted, and it was 250 artists, so wow. you can imagine. Oh, but God. the people that I remember, the first person I met was Bill Shank. Mm-hmm. And Bill Shank was, of course, you, gorgeous yeah. and uh, <laughs> larger than life as he still, still is. is yeah. And he still is gorgeous. Yeah. I'm going to um, tell them that oh. <laughs> when I interview him that you thought that. So. Well, I, I've, I'll never forget my... Uh, you know, I was in my 20s and yeah. going out with the whole gang because the the group of artists were very much like a cafe society. Mm-hmm. They they went out and partied together and interacted and drank at Trader Vic's and mm-hmm. uh, later AZ88 mm-hmm. and everything and uh, Los Olivos. 
And uh, there was a time or two in the early 80s where I'd wake up and find that I had signed or written a check thing. for the whole table. And I, I had to <laughs> learn put, the hard way, order at the bar and then sit down. <laughs> and so people like Bill Shank, who you've now known, mm. for, you know, what, 40 years or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Was he the same kind of guy that he is now? Driven. Yeah. I've got a picture of him with a telephone in each ear. He was he would be doing deals constantly. Yeah. He was a hustler in a in a in a good way, in right. an admirable way. He was always working on uh, sales and commissions and projects, mm -hmm. and so I really admired that drive and that mm -hmm. passion. I got to know, uh, of course, Mark McDowell. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to know uh, tangentially, uh, of course, Ed Mel, mm -hmm. because he was part of the sushi, sushi brothers that would go down to Kyoto to have sushi with all the other, with Michael Collier and Randy McCabe. And, and tell me about that, so the Sushi Brothers. The Sushi Brothers. They, they would regularly go and have um, sake and sushi right. uh, down the street. So they called themselves the Su Sushi Brothers. Oh, that's funny. And yeah. would you go yeah. and... Oh, I hung out with all those guys. Oh, Mark D'Ambrosi, who did uh -huh. the Arizona Bronze um, Foundry. Right. He did a lot of their castings. Um, uh, there were a lot of people that were around that I didn't hang with because they weren't um, partiers, quite frankly, mm -hmm. like we all were. But mm -hmm. uh, Gary Slater and Lyle London, all these sculptors mm -hmm. were uh, people that regularly came into the gallery. Masood Yasami, who was doing airbrushed uh, kind of um, magic realism mm -hmm. with floating spheres and rods mm -hmm. in, in cloudy skies. Um, but it was Meryl Mahaffey. Um, uh, I've got a funny story about Merrill. Tell me, I'll have uh, Merrill on too. Oh, you will? Okay. Yeah, he's one well, of my I artists. love Merrill. And, I, and he showed at Suzanne Brown. And he's one of the people who encouraged me to take the or go for the job at to Elaine Horwich because he was just leaving for him. Oh, interesting. Uh, for her. Yeah. And uh, Beth Ames Swartz was another one who had just left for mm -hmm. Elaine. So I knew some of the artists and they knew I was a hard worker. But back then, it was, you know, the height of kind of the party druggy era. Right. And he came to an opening, and he had some uh, white around his nose. And I went, Meryl, Meryl, be a little discreet. Clean up your nose. And he looked at me funny, and I said, <laughs> you know, been doing a little of the, and, yeah. you know, just assuming because right. that so many of the others were such bad boys and girls. Uh, and uh, he said, I've been airbrushing, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds <laughs> right for Merrill. Absolutely. You straight, know, just straight, straight, straight arrow. arrow. But yeah. I, why I even thought he would do that? Well, it was but the 80s. It was the 80s. So yeah. it was paint. Yeah. <laughs> and, I went, and I went, oh, my bad. I'm so sorry. Now, did you but, know? No. So she represented T.C. Cannon, too, didn't she? Or at least showed him. Early on in yeah. the 70s. But I think by the time I got there, she, she didn't uh, have him. But she had. she was one of the first people to show Earl Biss. Yeah. Certainly, Fritz Scholder, she I'd say she put him on the map, but other people were working at that, too. Tally Richards and Taos, right. and, of course, galleries in California. Were you working there when Fritz was there? I came just after the split. So that was like 80, 1980? 1980, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he changed his style, right? He was painting in this really, yeah. uh, from whatever, late 60s to about 80, this That's Native right. American kind of well, inspired, and I then something changed, right? Tell us about that. I found an old article where I had been quoted as saying something about he became increasingly demanding, and it's true, he really was. Yeah. But uh, I heard so many interesting stories about the big split. It's right. in this book that I'm working on. So I even have a section about the, the Horwich shoulder split. Um, it was a couple of things, and I got this from Ramona, who was there. Ramona Shoulder was his, um, his wife at the mm -hmm. time. Um, Elaine was, to some people, extremely generous, but to others, she was very late in paying because she mm. was always parlaying her money to buy a Georgia O'Keeffe or somebody yeah. else's work. Right. So she was a little slow. Well, it really was a combination of when he started to break away and do some of the Francis Bacon work or the Egyptian work. Right. Uh, some of the other more less sellable, less sellable, and mind, less southwest yeah. oriented. Yeah, that's right. um, he brought in a truckload of new work just before the opening, and um, and Dickie Felzer, her assistant, um, that she was a self-proclaimed Nava Jew. She mm -hmm. was a wealthy Jewish woman from Chicago who dressed in full Navajo attire. Right. Oh, they both were aghast, and they said, "We can't sell this." You know what? They were appalled, and instead of being open-minded and giving him yeah. a chance, um, she made it very clear to him that she couldn't sell it and that she didn't want to give him his um, advance. 
Huh? Because she didn't think she could sell it. Would well, she actually pay him in advance for the work? He'd she bring paid. I found out she had paid so many people. Everybody thought they were the only ones on a stipend or yes. on, a, on an arrangement, uh-huh. and it was scores of people mm. that she was uh, actually fronting. Wow. And it was That's her unusual. way to keep their loyalty. Yeah, yeah. She, and she had deep pockets, so yeah. she could do it. Wow. Um, Very but uh, so she would pay him up front a certain guarantee. Mm-hmm. And um, so what happened is he forced her. He said, "I'll put this right back on the truck if you don't pay me and take this work." Mm. And she knew she was between a rock and a hard place because she'd already advertised his show. Sure. So um, and usually she had always had the money rolled up in in hundred dollar bills stuck in her bosom and it was right there <laughs> and after she got pressed that he would take it away she whipped it out and paid him wow. uh, but he said this will be your last show he said that at yeah, that time because she was not going to stand by anything he did and he was you know really he and he also to to uh, her credit he started to dictate who she should sell and who she should show. In the and gallery. he wanted to decide. Right. So who he, he hung by. And he was the star. So in yeah. a way, he had felt he had the right and right. he had good taste. Um, but she didn't want anybody to tell her what to do. Yeah. So I don't that think was their any, last show. I don't show. think many galleries do, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a problem when artists get to that point that's and right. feel that, you yeah. know, I, I think if you're a, um, a gallerist who really knows what they want and mm-hmm. who they want, you won't allow that. She You'd had, rather she let somebody walk than totally do that. done her homework. She yeah. knew, and it wasn't always my favorite uh, style necessarily. Right. Um, I didn't always agree with her choices, but right. she knew but it was her, her choices. She knew her eye, and that yeah. was her gallery. Yeah, that's critical, um, I think. So I saw a lot of Fritz Shoulders. She had a lot of them. She had fronted, you know, many uh, sponsored many of his lithograph uh, suites. Right. Well, so those were all that. things we worked with. Uh, lots of paintings, like the Paiute Indian was mm-hmm. there, and many other um, of the last of the Native American series right. were still there. Of course, those have long since sold. And in her home, she had that wonderful pink one with the Native American wrapped in the American flag. Oh, yeah. That was in her Santa Fe house. So when he brought that group of paintings in in 1980, what mm-hmm. was the imagery that set her off? I, you what, know, what, I, I'm you trying remember? to remember that, and I think it was the Egyptian series, but I'd, I'd have to go back to be sure because I... I wasn't, uh, that's when I just came, so it, I'm, I'm piecing that out right, right now. Because the Francis Bacon might have come later, but yeah. I, I'd have to check on that. Actually, he when he was, uh, when she started, he had just done the Dartmouth series. Because yeah. David Redding, who had been um, a gallery worker right. at Dartmouth, met him and I think it was T.C. Cannon. Mm. And they, that's a good story, he um, came in with T.C. Cannon uh, and Fritz Scholder to meet Elaine. Mm. And um, she was trying to get T.C. Cannon to officially be her artist, and mm. he wouldn't do it because he was with Aberbach Gallery, and he had an exclusive. And she said, I'll, I'll give you a truck. She loved to buy cars and trucks right. for her artists. And um, she had bought um, Fritz a uh, Jaguar, I think it uh-huh. was, and then later a Rolls-Royce. Wow. But she said to TC, I'll buy you a truck, I'll buy you a truck. Uh-huh. And he just wouldn't go for it. I think she ended up buying some of his work outright. But And that was when? That was uh, in the 70s when she was just opening, like, 1976. Because so that Dartmouth piece, one of them just came up at auction, oh, yeah. actually, and, and it sold for a world's record, oh, 200, like $220,000. That is pretty big, because back then they were... She was getting them for ten thousand dollars, I yeah. think. Yeah. Wow. But um, basically, he look as the story goes. TC said to her, "Well, I don't need a truck, and I don't want to do business with you. I can't do business with you. But my friend here needs a job." And she said, "Really? Well, what do you do?" And she's he told her about how he had been working in Dartmouth, and she said, "Can you type? You start tomorrow." <laughs> so he became. Not her first director, but her second director. And his name was? David Redding, yeah, who's David now Redding. the, um, isn't he the director, or at least connected to the Allen Hauser estate. Right. Yeah. And so do you think she hired him strictly, David, to try to ingratiate herself to T.C.? Possibly a big part of it, yeah. but then anybody who had an academic background right. and could type was a big deal right. And had then. his ear, had yeah. T.C.'s yeah. ear. And I think her director before then might have had a drinking problem. Yeah. She needed someby that she could rely yeah. on. Um, but uh, she did uh, oftentimes uh, you know, hire people very spontaneously. Mm. She just had a good sense about somebody. Mm-hmm. So did she do I that think, with you? Yeah. I like to think that she knew my genius. <laughs> but, uh, but then um, 
you know, she, Earl Biss, like I said, was there. They all lived right. on Alameda, so uh-huh. they were their studios were down that way. Right. So that's how they all. Did she ever pay for other. studios? Do you know? Uh, not to my knowledge, but she gave money up front, and then they bought their own. Yeah. But she might have, but I, she was very generous yeah. with a lot of people. The ones that she wasn't generous with, I think she just did it to mess with their heads. Mm. Um, uh, Tom Palmore, James Havard, mm. uh, she would owe them lots of money, and then just kind of you know, jerk their chain and not wow. pay them on time till they were just incensed and angry. And then at the last minute, she'd pull out the money and just go here. And, and she would pay always in cash? Not always. But, but a lot of times? Especially if they were coming down to, yeah. to demand some money. And, the, yeah. and people would say, you know, give me my money right in front of people. And <laughs> she could have paid them. She was giving everybody else advances yeah. and stipends. And she was quite wealthy. Yeah. And so she just did it to jerk their chains because she liked to do that. I mean, she oh, was a piece of work. That's really At one point, just to be funny, for her birthday present, I bought her one of those Baskin and Robbins, you know, no, take a number yeah. uh, dispensers right. because the people lining up <laughs> to get money or advances or to try to beg her to fund one of their right. print suites or whatever was so great that it was just this steady stream of you know, anxious artist mm. with their hands out. So I did the take a number thing to have it be outside her door. Yeah. She didn't think it was very funny. I was, was going to say, I bet that didn't go over as well. <laughs> no, no. And sometimes <laughs> she, she would say, I'm busy. And then she'd say, what are we ordering for lunch? Yeah. You know, she just would keep people waiting. It was a game with her. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so she opens Phoenix or Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Then not long after that, she does Santa Fe. And she had even more than that. When yeah. she first went to Marshall Way, she had a graphics ga- a gallery uh, on the opposite side of the street. Mm-hmm. Then she built her own gallery with a, an architect and everything, the first officially built gallery as a gallery mm. in Scottsdale. And where is that? Is Other it still than Floyd Kiva knew, because he built, yeah. of course, the Kiva right. Center. That was his building. Um, and that was on the opposite side at 4211 mm-hmm. uh, Marshall Way. Mm. But she kept the original gallery and made that into a graphics gallery. Mm. So she had two galleries in Scottsdale. Mm. And in 76, she opened in Santa Fe and then expanded three times. In Santa Fe. In Santa Fe. In yeah. the, just getting uh, more and more Eating adjacent. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. On Palace. And right. what I found out later is that she, her gallery was actually in the same location that Leonora Curtin, back in the 30s, mm. had the Native Market. And the mm. Native Market was a... Right. Uh, it was in Tucson, too, by the way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it was a New Deal-sponsored right. outlet for Hispanic uh, yeah, crafts or New Mexico Spanish colonial. It would encourage the revival of those things that they felt were yeah. getting lost, yeah. which was So it was so interesting they, to find so archival photos of the 20s, or yeah. not the 20s, but the 30s, of the native market, seeing the same pressed tin ceiling that I right. looked up at for years and the same space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was... Um, eerily familiar to me. And did she own those buildings? No, uh, it was the Palahamos. Leonor Curtin Palahamo, that was her landlord. And I remember mm. uh, Mr. Palahamo coming mm. in to talk to Arnie Horwich, her husband, and you know, coming in to get the rent check or whatever. Uh, so it was pretty exciting to see that history continue mm. because Elaine was one of the first people to not only have this amazing bank of Indian jewelry, mm. uh, which she sold simultaneously with contemporary art. That was, again, Lolama? Uh, Lolama, but also a lot of the Pueblo artists, mm. um, uh, Fanny well, Pacheco, Lovato, uh, Aguilar. Maybe, m- yeah. Maybe, yeah. Lovato. Yes, I think so. Yeah. So all these artists uh, had were showing there right along with um, Larry Rivers or yeah. Frank Stella. Wow. Or, uh, you know, California artist Thurman Statham, Marilyn Levine. Hockney, Levine, too, right? David Hockney. Now and how she did would she go from there. there? How did she go from Native American art mm-hmm. to Hockney? She was always eclectic. She was showing David Gil Hooley even in the late 60s, mm. before anybody knew David Gil Hooley, of course, mm-hmm. the funk artist from the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. She had a beautiful William Wiley in her home ever since I had been there in the Mm -hmm. early 80s. So in the 70s, she got William Wiley. Mm. So she knew her art. Uh, She was going to um, New York museums and galleries since the 60s, and she would go to auction. So she already knew these people. And when you look at all the kinds of art that she showed... She was showing Mexican artists, Tamayo, and she, showed uh, Tamayo. Uh, she was showing Siqueiros, mm-hmm. even in the 60s. Hmm. So she knew her stuff, and um, so it, she would always uh, partner up with the big galleries in New York and 
bring people out. Don Nice was another one. Mm-hmm. Um, she was always on the lookout. So, so how did she get a guy like Hockney? Did she work with the dealer that represented Hockney? I'm going to assume so. I didn't yeah. always know or I can't remember now. Some of this is fading. Um, but I remember that she did work with a number of big galleries mm. because when we would go to art fairs, she'd say, come on, we're going for a walk. And so mm-hmm. it was like her puppy. She would... Uh, make the rounds to all of the big dealers and they knew right. her intimately. They, uh, oh, Elaine. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in Chicago yeah, or Los Angeles yeah. or Miami. Because she would buy. Right. And so they all knew her because they were doing business with her. Yeah. And uh, she had this amazing Navajo woven bag of a cow. Mm. It was like a satchel. Mm-hmm. And see, this was before computers. So all of her transparencies that she was brokering deals mm. with were in that bag. So all of her contacts, mm. uh, she had a big day runner, a big fat, just right. stuffed thing of all of right. her contacts. She would be up three hours before anybody else that she was doing deals over the phone mm. and uh, brokering things with these big galleries. So they would say, help me to sell this and it's put the commission or whatever. Right. So they would do deals. And, and did so, she, was that her thing? Did she love the deal? Was that? More than anything. Yeah, that was uh, the deal. I think she loved art, but she loved the art of the deal. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, that was more fun to her, yeah. you know, making sure that she got the sale. And uh, she had a technique that I didn't always love, but I understand now how effective it was. Mm. Um, she'd say, don't clean up. I'd tidy up and get everything off the floor. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to look like a museum in the galleries. And she'd say, no, no, leave stuff out. It looks like somebody just came in and uh, <laughs> was looking. Was looking and oh, people will say, funny. well, oh, if that's what somebody was looking at, I want to see some of that. Don't keep it all in the back. And uh, so I'd go, oh, and so I'd leave it out, and I wanted to tidy up. But she, and she, she had great. her followings, right? I mean, they, oh, yeah. people would come in, and if Lane said, oh, you yeah. need to have this artist, they would buy it because of what just, she said. Just because yeah. she said so. And they were kind of, yeah. she, that was kind of right, though, right? I mean, she did really probably put some people onto well, some amazing and material. And she collected it all herself. So yeah. she didn't just say that right. and have, uh, you know, Tao school at home. Uh, although she, I think she collected some of that as well. But... Um, uh, she had celebrities. I mean, Robert Redford, he would sometimes wait, have us wait till after hours, and then he'd have a mm-hmm. private showing. This Rich, would be in Santa Fe. In Santa Fe. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Also uh, a big collector, Richard, very knowledgeable. Yes, yes. Rich, I sold him an Ida Kohlmeyer. I'll mm-hmm. never forget. And he was very charming and very polite. You like Dixon, too, by the way, Vincent Price. Oh, he did? He did. And then, of course, eventually and a museum, and he collected Native American yeah, work. absolutely. Yeah. I have some of the pieces that were collected with Vincent Price here, and Clay Lockett. They went and got oh some God. things out of Hearst's private collection, and mm-hmm. they he allowed him in because Vincent was out able to get the inroads to Hearst. There's a great biography on him right now. That's nice uh, fat thing I'm on reading. Vincent Price. On Vincent oh, Price. Very yeah. Good. yeah, I'll lend it to you. Yes, thank you. Now, so Vincent Price, Robert Redford, who else would have come through there? You would have seen anybody who is uh, working on a film. Richard mm. Crenna, mm. Um, of course, Larry Hagman. He uh, ended up. His daughter married one of uh, Elaine's artists, so mm. he was around. Um, it, and it, she loved music. Mm. So uh, we would go to, we would get behind this backstage uh, to Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Fonda was a friend, Dennis Hopper. Mm. Uh, all of those people were a steady stream. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, mm. because he was a friend of D.K. Hall, Douglas Kent Hall, mm-hmm. who photographed him when he was a bodybuilder. Mm. And he was one of the first to photograph Lisa Lyons as mm. well, mm. one of the first female bodybuilders. Um, and she represented Douglas for a while. So all of these people, it was a steady stream of celebrities. I started to write a list. Goldie Hawn came mm. through. I sold her a concho belt. Um, it, it was exciting. Uh, yeah, and Allie, you were young. Allie McGraw, yes. Yeah. I mean, Who's still there. Steady Allie's stream. of yes. lives in Santa Fe and loves it and is a kind of a... Uh, A mainstay. We we see her still in the Native American arts, Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. to the shows and helping out. Yeah, she's a wonder. She was always sweet. I I do remember the uh, very few conversations, and usually I was just listening to Elaine have fun with her. But uh, she did say at at one point, I don't know why everybody thinks I'm such a big deal. I wasn't a very good actress. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, it doesn't matter. You're Ellie McGraw. Yes, and a wonderful human. She is a wonderful human. Absolutely. So you did Santa Fe at Mm -hmm. Elaine's through what? period of time when did you leave Elaine's well, and why did you leave I Elaine's? became full-time uh, in Santa Fe right. in 1983 to 85 so yeah. two years I was there winters and summers yeah. but winters were brutal to yeah. me and I started yeah. to really pine for 
uh, smell of <laughs> mowed lawns and right. a bustling city. Um, and about that time, she uh, was about to open. She had just opened in Sedona, and she was about to open in Palm Springs. Wow. And she needed someone to kind of be the operations manager of all of these. Right. And so I knew... I, I knew the inventory, like the back of my hand. Right. I was the one in charge of all the inventories. Right. And I knew all the artists. My job was all the PR and marketing, all the communications, all the interactions with the artists except the initial deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was the natural. So she said, I need to send you back to Scottsdale. Mm. So other than summers in Santa Fe, I, I went back. And mm-hmm. that's when I decided it's time I go back to school. Mm. Because all of that exposure to New York... I realized that there was a bigger world Through out the there. art fairs. Yes. I realized that, um, you know, Larry Rivers could tell me a great anecdote about this or the other thing. I could um, know the market back and forth. Mm. I knew what kind of frames they all liked, but I didn't know why their art was important. I knew it was important. I mm-hmm. knew how much it sold for. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to know the deeper history. Right. And I decided I need to go back to school. Mm. Uh, what tipped it over for me was uh, a Suzanne Brown had a graphic sale to get rid of some things. Mm. And um, I remember people jumping on a few pieces, and then Elaine had one, just a little private, quick discount sale. Mm-hmm. And there was a Philip Guston, and I let it go for $25. Oh, my God. And when I found out who he was and how important he was, I thought, you are an idiot. Right. <laughs> you need to go back to and school. And was that like a lithograph kind of thing? It was still? just a small litho. And, but I think to this day, why didn't I buy it? But yeah, Because I didn't be know worth... any better. Yeah. Who knows? Oh, I can tell you. It's 25000 maybe. Yeah, it's crazy. And yeah. I let it go because I didn't know any better, and that's what it was priced at. Yeah. And, and how did she end up with that? I mean, oh, they bought... They, Suzanne and she bought, and I think she might have bought Suzanne's inventory or had enough of her own stash. Mm -hmm. They bought everywhere. They traveled Mm. all the time. Mm. I mean, they came to Albuquerque to look at Jim Wade's show. Mm. Uh, They were in Tucson all the time. They were in California. Mm. So they she was was looking to find new art, new artists all the time, all the time. So she knew a lot more than she let on. Um, so anyway, um, so that one piece that, that did you it. let it pay, and I pass. realized, oh my God, do I know nothing? Yeah. And seeing the art fairs right. and how heady that was, so right. I thought I need to. I would like to work in a museum. Yeah. And I thought, oh, an MFA, I can work anywhere. Well, no, you can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, so I tried to get a couple of jobs, and they said, right. no, you need an art history degree. So I thought, well, I'll get one. Yeah. So I went back to school, and L- Elaine let me do that. While I was working yeah. there. So I was in the this middle of This is mid-80s? This is late 80s. Late 80s yeah. now. So I started in the late 80s. Um, was I helped to set up, or I set up the Palm Springs location. Mm-hmm. Did a number of shows, the very famous motorcycle show that she did be, well before um, the Guggenheim ever did yeah, it. Yeah, tell, tell us about that. Well, it's interesting. I finally was able to uh, talk to um, Charles Falco, mm-hmm. because he's the one who organized the, the show for the Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. And I said, did you know that Elaine Horwich had done one in the late 80s? And he said, no, I never met her before. Mm. And it just goes to show that back then, before the Internet was so big, right. you know, if you didn't get it documented right. in, How in would posterity, you know? nobody would know. But she loved motorcycles mm. and uh, collected them herself mm. as art. And her husband would never let her ride one, but she, mm-hmm. if she could, she, she just liked done it. it. She loved it as yeah. art. Yeah. And there's lots of great quotes in newspapers where she said, this is an art form. Right. And so she's right. she wanted to do the show. It was her idea. And uh, it was Indians and um, Indian motorcycles. Indian motorcycles. Right. And it was um, Harley Davidson's. Mm. She loved Harley's the best. Mm-hmm. She had found uh, what she called the curator of motorcycles. And for, right now his name escapes me, but he had a long gray beard and he came from the Midwest. And he selected the bikes. Mm. And she went into business with um, Ronnie. Um, Greenberg from mm-hmm. St. Louis, mm. who had a gallery there. And together, they uh, did the show in uh, Palm Springs, mm. and then I think it went to the Aspen Art Center mm. and Santa Fe, maybe to St. Louis before mm. it How many motorcycles out. would have been in that? You know, there were so many, but there were, I'm going to say it was two semis full mm. of mm. bikes. Mm. And, uh, oh, Howard, I remember his name was Howard something, but anyway, uh, I'll never forget when those bikes pulled up. And was they, it well received? It was huge. It was a benefit for AIDS. And we had uh, the Blasters yeah. Rockabilly Band and another band, who, yeah. the name escapes yeah. me. Uh, 
and we had uh, Sonny Bono's bike. Mm. We had um, other celebrity bikes as well, mm-hmm. but these bikes, and we did the, as, as gallery workers, we did the detailing. So I learned how to clean a bike. <laughs> I was on TV <laughs> being interviewed. Right. And of course, back then I had the, the big, uh, you know. Hair. Meg mm. Ryan hair. It was 80, and, this yeah, was about 88. Skinny in, in jeans and a white t-shirt rolled yeah. up, you know, hanging on yeah. the bike, getting interviewed. Yes, 1987, I think it yeah. might have been, 88. Yeah, that's uh, right. And um, it was exciting. And then every night at the end of the day of cleaning, then Howard would fire up the bikes and we'd go in the sidecars. They'd <laughs> put the girls in the sidecars and we'd ride around in the desert. It was wonderful. So did, was that? Did she sell bikes at all, or was it? Yes, strict she sold. She it was a sale, and yeah. it was a sale with a percentage going to AIDS. Oh wow! And they had every Harley Davidson uh, motor club uh, mm. and Hell's Angels and everything came out in droves wow. from L.A. Wow! They even had a special parking lot blocked off for motorcycles that it said, you know, motorcycle parking only. Mm. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay's uh, favorite designer of black leather jackets and and his leather mm-hmm. jackets were hanging from rafters. Uh, it was exciting. She had, you know, T-shirts for sale. It, she loved the spectacle. Right, it, it was the spectacle. Uh, past shows, she brought out Queen Ida and her Zydeco band. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did everything. She was a showman. Total showman. And in Scottsdale, her last show in Scottsdale before she passed away, she had Larry Rivers and flew out his jazz band. Oh, wow. And I've got a picture of her standing there just excited as can be looking at Larry performing. Uh, and I'll I'll never forget that. And when did she pass away? She, she had, passed away she had, in 1991. Yeah, she had cancer. Or uh, no, no, what she had. It? A, it, you know, it's hard to say. They said that she was suffering from the flu, um, and that she died from either a heart attack or complications yeah. from so the it flu. So it was not an expected. It was so sudden. We were uh, all shocked. It oh, was wow. shocking, and uh, they parked a motorcycle in the window with a display of flowers all around oh, that's it cool. and uh, I flew back from uh, a trip from California she had interestingly she had already closed the Palm Springs gallery mm. it was short-lived it uh, didn't uh, kind of pan out as as she expected mm. uh, she expected that she would be the catalyst for a whole new arts district mm. that just didn't pan out mm. um, and she had closed Sedona so it was around the time of the uh, Gulf War mm-hmm. and the the market tanked. I remember it well. And she was getting tired. She was getting tired. It's right when I was opening my first gallery. Oh, you're kidding. Well, yeah. you were adventurous. I didn't know better. <laughs> oh. You know? Okay. You just don't know. Yeah. You know? It's like, well, oh. She just saw good the handwriting on the wall. She started talking about, I just want to go live on a ranch somewhere and just stop. It was getting too much. And she felt the burden of trying to keep everybody in business and all of the yeah. artists, you know. Fed. Yeah, and she had four so, or five galleries, and that's right. very difficult. So I was there when she closed Palm Springs. Mm. I was cleaning out the drawers and packing up the art. My mm-hmm. job was to get the inventory back mm. and to figure it all out. Mm. And it was heartbreaking because mm. it was a wonderful space. She had a beautiful apartment above the gallery. Mm. It was the old garage for the El Mirador Hotel mm. um, and uh, where all the limos would be parked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we closed that, and I th- I think Sedona was next, if I'm not mistaken, mm. uh, and closed that one up. And the artists were just shocked, and she had to do it fast because, you right. know. It's like pulling off a Band-Aid, too. You have to do it. Right. And so, this was late 80s? This was late 80s. Yeah. So um, she had a big warehouse, which is now where Polly Larson is, mm. the Larson yeah. Gallery, oh, yeah. was her storage area for all this extra inventory. Mm. And so it was our job to try to make sense of it all. It was a, it was a tough time, actually, mm-hmm. for everybody. So I'm in my program trying to wrap things up right, you're in the and it's 1991 and she's got larry rivers out and my job was to pick him up from the airport and take him around right. which was very fun because he talked about you know jackson pollock in the I'm old sure. days yeah uh and uh she, and at this point you know enough about history because yes, you're studying because i'm it. studying it right. and i'm making myself so it makes more sense so i got how important he was yeah, right and uh, louise nevelson of course was one of her artists that right. she showed we had a wow. big show frank stella i mean it went yeah. on and on yeah. and um uh so the week after that she flew to santa fe she had a private plane and mm-hmm. you know would fly with her own pilot um she had a show of Susan Hertel, and Susan Hertel was one of Robert Redford's favorite artists. Mm. And uh, that evening, where she normally would go out and socialize with everybody, she said, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to go home. And they found her the next morning. Mm. And uh, she was 
found with one of her favorite research sources, which is People magazine, <laughs> and a half-eaten Snickers bar. And I thought, that's the way I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying not. it till the end. <laughs> yeah, I'll enjoy it. Maybe not the Snickers bar. <laughs> no, I like the Snickers. Um, no, uh, probably a payday. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, it was a shock to us all. And because I was still in school and right. because the family sort of needed someone who knew where everything right. was and what the latest deals were, um, I, did, I definitely stayed on. And you're working on a book on her. I am. I and this am. is um, uh, a book for the general public, right? I, I hope so, although I, I did want it to be somewhat academic in that right. I want to set the record straight with dates and details because so much of it is just so kind of loosey-goosey, at least mm -hmm. that time period. So um, Cattle Track uh, Preservation, um, what is it called? Cattle Track Studios and Historic Preservation mm -hmm. Group commissioned me to write a book about Elaine mm. because she was so instrumental in so many uh, people's careers mm -hmm. and, and so much in everybody's uh, collective memory. Right. But as I started to write it, um, I thought, oh, I could do this in you know a summer. Right. I realized <laughs> how rich that history was. Right. And I felt like I needed to expand on it. And the first thing I, that started me to expand on it was realizing that she wasn't the first commercial contemporary gallery in Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. She wasn't the first in Santa Fe. Mm. And so I started by realizing, you've got to write about these other important women. They were just as important, mm -hmm. and they were first. They have to be mentioned. And as I started to write about all these important women, I found out how interesting it was with their rivalries. They all drove Rolls Royces or Jaguars. Really? They were. So this is like Amelia White. No, the, I'm talking about even. It started with just the women from the '60s and the '70s. Oh, I see. And then I realized this goes back even further. Yeah. Now I'm looking at you know Mary Wheelwright and uh, right. Mary Austin and um, Mabel Dodge. Ma Mabel Dodge Luhan, yeah. and so it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right. And what I'm finding is that the women were the most adventurous. Mm. I, I, had to I be, would say, I think, or as you, adventurous. In some, in some ways, Absolutely. to come to that area. Absolutely. You know, come to New Mexico before it's, a, you know, when it's still a territory. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, I mean, when you think can't about even it. vote. And they uh, went to uh, Navajo land and Hopi territory yeah, that's right. back when, uh, you know, it was really somewhat dangerous, at least if your car broke down. I mean, we think we can't go anywhere without, you know, a huge right. thing of water. They or were, a cell phone. They yeah, exactly. Oh, phone. my God. We think no about anything. it. They're and they would camp tees. under the stars, right. you know, and I won't go near the rattlesnakes. But um, they were intrepid. Yeah. And she was part of that continuum. Mm -hmm. um, so are you, by the way. Oh, I hardly compared well, to that. Well, in some ways yeah. you are. I mean, you're carrying the torch, right? That, I feel like, yeah. if anything... If I can contribute by being the chronicler of that era, mm -hmm. um, I know so many of the artists still that were a part of that scene. Mm. I've come to show them at the Tucson Museum. Uh, I counted it up uh, during my time with Elaine Horwich. I organized 350 exhibitions. Mm. So if anybody had all the stuff, and I kept all the press releases, mm. all of the uh, announcements, uh, all the articles about the artists, I kept a file, and thank God I did. And I uh, am a big list maker, and I mm -hmm. made a list of who showed when. And I thought, you have to do this. You're the one who remembers this stuff. Mm -hmm. and and a lot of those yeah. 300 exhibits, those individuals are probably passed, a lot of them. A lot of them have gone, yeah. and, and as well as some of the collectors. So there's a race with time for right. me to get That's this That's one of the done. reasons I'm doing this show, too, is yeah. you know, the yeah. podcast is I want mm -hmm. to capture you and the individuals that have made up the period of time I've been alive and what I'm doing, because mm -hmm. this is a very fertile time for changes in art that I think will be looked back at in time mm -hmm. and go, oh, wow, they did what? They did how? They do all this? It, it's fascinating. And of course, it's our history. And maybe it doesn't matter to the, the bigger city centers, you know, because they have their own important history. And right. it seems to have supplanted anybody else's. But, right. Uh, for those New York? Yeah. And for those Chicago. people who care about this history, it didn't right. end with the Santa Fe Colony no. or the Tao Society. It just started, actually. It just started, and it keeps going. Mm -hmm. And I'm stopping, you know, at the early 90s when she passed away, but somebody else can pick up the mm -hmm. torch and go on from there. Uh, or maybe I'll do a second book. Who knows? But mm -hmm. the point is, mm -hmm. uh, that was a very special slice in time, and, and I have a certain perspective about it and connection to those people. So I've got a lot of candid interviews. And So how does story. that affect you, this retail, rich life that you had for a very long period of time? 
now as a curator, because you've been mm -hmm. a curator probably longer with museums than you were as a, yeah. in the retail. About the bit. same, about the same amount so, of time. Yeah. About 15, 18 years. Yeah, I think it's now well, eighteen at the TMA, but I was at the University of Arizona as a curator. Yeah. For five years before so, that, so, so it's been over twenty years. Yes, longer as a curator. So yeah. twenty years now in academia. Mm -hmm. How did that experience affect you and what you do today? I know you don't leave paintings out on the ground. That's right, I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I'll say that it, it certainly informed that, that continually talking to people. Mm -hmm. That informed, uh, first of all, I'm fearless in contacting artists mm. or big name artists or big I bet collectors. That's right. Because I don't, I'm not afraid of them. I know, it, I know right. how they tick. I know right. how I interacted with curators and what mm -hmm. they need. So it's always something that's built on something else that I had mm -hmm. done. And uh, for me, um, certainly in this writing, I'm not going to um, take out the galleries. When you read a lot of histories about certain artists, mm. you hear very little about their galleries and the mm. interactions of the business end. Right. And I think that's critical. an important, yes, yeah. it's an important aspect that keeps getting written out so that more time is spent on describing the work mm -hmm. or the museum interactions, but right. not the galleries. And the galleries, kind of what, kept those artists going mm -hmm. so I'm and sometimes built them up absolutely Elaine would be a very As good example Elaine did of this. with Fritz Schilder yeah, or bring them down sometimes she put thousands into advertising him yeah. back when none of the galleries in the southwest were doing ads in art in America mm. or art news yeah. she was doing full page ads mm. and everyone else started to follow suit after her so I'm trying to revive some of that interest some of mm. the first galleries in Santa Fe some of the first in Tucson, mm -hmm. some of the first in Scottsdale, and to trace that history because that history is important. So yeah, it is. It's really given me a, um, a, a real respect for that profession and how they are part of this web. And I see it as a web. Mm -hmm. Everything's interconnected. The museums, the schools, the galleries, the artists, they mm -hmm. all relied on each other um, to create this art community in these various cities. And um, I think it's worth recording. Absolutely. I really do. Well, and I have, I know we're probably getting close on time, but I have another question just that's more on the contemporary aspect of what you're doing now. So one of my favorite artists is John Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. And you have, you were able to get a piece yes. for our museum before, well, it was still affordable. Yeah. How did you pick Chamberlain and how did that happen? I was looking <clears throat> for the Contemporary Art Society. I uh, when I first came, I thought, lest they think I don't know my good art, I came up with 250 artists that I thought <laughs> we should collect. That sounds like a saucy and, move. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Over, overcompensation. Right. <laughs> and I said, this is to show you how you could go anywhere and it's going to improve the collection. Not right. to say that the collection was bad, but they weren't aggressively collecting in the 70s right. when they could have gotten conceptual art or minimal Hockney art. and all those Right, guys. they were yeah. mostly collecting area crafts, which is fine. That mm -hmm. was their interest back then. Um, and... Uh, so they they had a little catch-up to do. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what we need is some art that when you walk in, you go, that's a so-and-so. Right. A name recognition to build mm -hmm. the collection. Mm -hmm. Because we had a lot of the, the area artists. Um, lots of Jim Wade, which I love. But yeah. Nancy Tokar Miller. Yeah. You know, all the, lots of Maurice Grossman, et cetera. Right. So all good artists. But we didn't have a lot of uh, California artists or big-name artists. And uh, um, so I thought, well, look at some of these big mm. names. And somehow he ended up in our final, after I wore people down, down to the last 10. And I started to look around. And I think I'd done some research on the most um, underrated artists mm. today. And Chamberlain was in there. And what year was that? That was in the early 2000s. I'm going to say 2002-ish. Yeah. yeah, wow. Uh, something like that. Yeah. So I started calling the galleries. And, of mm. course, this is where this... I was going to say, I, I feel a little Elaine Horowitz in here, <laughs> out there looking for I, uh, the most the under, Well, yeah, you're in a kind of way, right? Yeah. I mean, you're looking for the best artists that your money can buy absolutely. that are important yep. and trying to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. exactly what you did. And so I started calling all these dealers. And, mm -hmm. of course, I knew how to reach them through the Internet. Right. And, and Art in America Guide to Galleries was always my Bible. Right. And I started calling people. And so I found a gallery that dealt with him on secondary market, and they had a collector in London mm. who had one to get rid of. Mm. Uh, or not to get rid of, but to yeah. sell. It was time. And uh, I...
can't tell you it was an amazing deal. And I think that piece is now worth, um, well, I can't even tell you how many times over, but yeah, like add a, a couple five, more zeros. Right? Uh, more yeah. more than two more zeros yeah. added to what we paid for it. Yeah. And uh, and it's, it's a big piece. I mean, it's, it's a it's not a, compared to his monumental works I, like you'd see in uh, Marfa, but but it's yeah, yeah, it's significant. Yeah, and it was from the tail end. Unfortunately, it just missed the cutoff for his catalogue raisonné. Uh, but it's from 1986, I uh-huh. think. But it's when he still did the drip painting before right. he did the uh, candy-colored spray paint images. Um, and I tried to get him out, and he said, oh, just take him to Marfa, which I did. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't want to come For those who don't know, Marfa has a huge selection of uh, Chamberlain in a, stuff. In an old and, wool barn. Yeah, it's so unbelievable. It's fabulous, yeah. Uh, you know, you can just, so. they're just set around like big chunks of candy for artists who are people who are really interested in yeah, his work just and, love his work and so would you so. consider that to be one of your coups that you've managed to do for i think Tucson i think so, i think so and then of course when we got tom utek mm. uh that was uh, actually the piece had been brought in from milwaukee or, or from his no actually his gallery in new york mm. a Mil, uh, wisconsin artist uh, and I wanted him to be in my show called Trouble in Paradise, Examining Discord in Nature mm-hmm. and Society. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the first five ex- museum exhibitions that looked at the environment. Mm. Um, and uh, to me, it was a very important piece. Well, that piece, I said to the Contemporary Art Society, please, you should buy this. It's here. We've already paid for the shipping. Right. It's an important work. Let's do it. And they listened to me. I was so grateful because uh, when I saw the New York Times with a full-page ad with UTEC in the background <laughs> announcing the new Crystal Bridges Museum. I was like, score! Right. I brought it in and said, look, our artist. And uh, now that piece is being borrowed by a museum in the Northwest mm. um, about the environment. And uh, it's one of their um, signature pieces in the you, show. And you continue to do this. I mean, yeah. we were just in New York City looking at artists and contemporary mm-hmm. artists, and you're searching and finding. And you know, and you turned myself on to Leonardo Drew, who's I think a very important One sculptor. Yeah, how my did that favorite, happen? Favorite, favorite artist. Yeah, he's fantastic. Well, I had first seen his work when I went to visit a friend in San Antonio on my way to Mexico. Mm. So we stopped off to visit him before we all flew down together. And he was managing a big space in San Antonio that was studios and galleries. Mm. And he said, "You got to meet this artist. He's working. He's got a residency, mm-hmm. and he's working on a big piece for the for a show at the Hirshhorn." And it was Leonardo Drew. And, and what was, year was this? This, I'm going to say 2000, oh, I don't even know. I'm going to say 2003-ish. Yeah, also, oh, so you're again ahead of the curve. Yeah, and oh, my God. And he was in a hoodie, and he had a little mattress in the corner of this huge space, and he was doing this fantastic work. And I kept following him after that because mm. I, I felt like he made such an impression on me. Mm. Um, and when we were planning where we would go, I saw a list of potential places, and when I heard Leonardo Drew, I said, absolutely, we're going there. To me, he's sort of this generation's uh, Louise Nevelson. Wow. It, but also ex- a favorite of exponentially mine. more Baroque and fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a big personality. And a too. big personality. So to me, that's our generation's And Nevelson. you'll have a piece of his coming for a show too, correct? Is that we right? We have a most incredible exhibition. This is from the Rubel family collection from Miami. Mm-hmm. It's been traveling around the country called 30 Americans. Mm. And uh, of course, 30 African-American artists, some of the top uh, mm-hmm. artist working today and drew has a massive piece in that exhibition that's so. the cotton piece right cotton yeah. bales yeah and uh, we got to see a video of that in his studio of him wheeling sections down yeah. the street in new york <laughs> it was just awesome so i'm looking forward to that and i hope to have him as a continuum to come on this show Oh, and that we'll would talk. be great. Yeah, wouldn't that be fantastic? I'll, I'll pour water for you. <laughs> I love <laughs> to right. be in his presence. All right, I'm going to let you. I'll let you know when the water <laughs> pouring begins. I will say another piece that uh, we purchased that was a, a good score was um, Joyce uh, Scott, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, she is another artist that's making waves today. And we just lent our piece. So a lot of the work we've collected in the last, say, 20 years right. is being lent out to other museums yeah. around the around the country. Uh, a big one uh, by Robert Bechtel went to the yeah. Guggenheim for wow. a touring show. So I'm pretty proud of what we've done to... Well, that's your legacy. I, I, I mean, so. that is your yeah. legacy. If I, I mean, if I can come away saying that I did my part right. to build the collection, that means the world to me. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great place to end. Sounds Julie Sassi, 
head curator of modern contemporary Latin art at Tucson Museum of Art and a good friend. And thank you for being part of my life. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon, I hope.